Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, I had intended on preaching this morning from verses uh, 9 to 12, but uh, I made a last minute decision because I just felt like there was so much here that we could just meditate on. So this morning's text is just going to be from verse 9 and 10, First Peter chapter 2. Verses 9 and 10. Peter writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says to these believers spread out all throughout Asia. He says, but you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's go again to the Lord. Father, here in this text, You, through Your holy Apostle, speak of Your people. Speak of those who are in Christ, have trusted in Him, and who've been born again by the work of the Spirit, by Your grace and mercy. You speak of them not as if they are just nothing more than poor wretches who are to be pitied. But you dignify your people with a great status and great titles. They are royal priests, they are your holy nation. Your people are your treasured possession. Lord, as You raise us up from the dust, as we were those who were indeed poor and pitiful wretches, and You raise us up by the grace of Christ, and as it were, crown us with glory. then call us to proclaim Your excellencies. Give us a mission to be the voice of the Gospel of Christ in this world. To be a light to the nations. 
You equip us with the very ability to do so because we are those who have indeed tasted Your goodness. We are those who have been ransomed and rescued and transferred from light to darkness. And so as we proclaim Your excellencies, we are proclaiming nothing more than what we have known in our own lives through the grace of Christ. So Lord, I pray that as we understand who we are in Jesus, that this would embolden us to proclaim all the more of Your excellencies. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our subject this morning is proclaiming His excellencies. Proclaiming the excellencies of God in Christ. This is the great purpose of the Christian. This is our honor. It is our calling. Among the many spiritual sacrifices that we are called to offer to God as His holy priests, prayer, thanksgiving, walking with Him in holiness, obeying His commands, chief among these offerings, chief among these sacrifices is proclaiming His excellencies to the world. When soldiers go into a battle, they are, of course, given a mission. They have an assigned task. And it is that task, above all others, that they are to have a singular focus on. And for the Christian, this is the task that we have been given by our King to proclaim His excellencies. And this proclamation here is no mere metaphor for just doing good deeds. It's not as if we can proclaim His excellencies without using words. Sometimes there is quote that is often stated by Christians that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, where he says, as tradition has it, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And of course, the idea is that we are to live in such a way that the gospel is borne witness to through our very lives. That's not what Peter means here. That's not a substitute for proclaiming His excellencies. This here is a call to make a verbal proclamation. The psalmist says in Psalm 75, verse 15, he says, My mouth will tell. My mouth will proclaim your righteous acts, your deeds of salvation all the day. In Psalm 79, verse 13, we read, 
But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount, we will proclaim your praise. In Isaiah 43, verses 20 to 21, a text that Peter here is no doubt reflecting upon in these verses, God says there that he will give drink to his chosen people. He will give water in the wilderness when this day of a new exodus comes, this new work of salvation that he was already preparing generations ago. He will give drink to his chosen race. The people whom I formed for Myself, He said, that they might declare My praise. Christians have not been called to a life of solitude and silence. We've not been called to be a people who exits the battlefield of the world once the Lord has saved us. We are a people who have been called by God to proclaim His excellencies. And this is a calling as well that belongs to every single Christian. This is not just a calling that is given to pastors. This is not just a calling that is given to gifted evangelists or famous apologist, this is a calling that is assigned to every Christian who bears the name of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, the Apostle Paul says that God has given the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is the pattern that we find all throughout the Bible. When God delivers His people, whether that is from enemies, whether that is from death, whether that is a deliverance from sickness, whether it is a deliverance from sin, He does so so that His people who have been delivered would in response to that deliverance proclaim the great excellencies of God. His will is that His glory would be made known. And and not just the glory of His power that is made known in creation as the heavens bear witness to His glory as the sky above proclaims His handiwork. This is is not just a, a glory He desires to be known of known for His eternal power that you can see and observe in natural revelation, but He desires that His glory as the Savior and as the King be made known chiefly through the Gospel of Christ, which is what must be proclaimed by His saints. It's what He's raised us up for. This is our calling. Yet this is a calling that many often shrink back from. They grow fearful. They grow intimidated. Rather than their hearts overflowing in joy from the gracious works of God that they have known in their 
own lives, they become paralyzed by a multitude of fearful thoughts. Perhaps they hear the way that some pastor preaches and teaches the Word of God and they they say to themselves, oh, I, I could never, I could never explain the Bible like that. I could never teach it. I could never proclaim it in, in that manner. And so they make no effort to. Perhaps they, they hear some great theologian who knows the Bible from front to back far better than they do. They hear him lecture. They hear him teach. And, and they say to themselves again, I don't know my Bible as well as he does. There's no way that I could ever communicate the Gospel with this winsomeness, with this intellect, with this clarity. Or they hear some famous Christian apologist who's able to apply the Gospel to the world's greatest objections, whether they be from the various fields of science or other religions or from atheists or even just your average unbeliever. And they hear the way that this apologist is able to address these objections in winsome and memorable and thoroughly biblical ways. And and they say to themselves, I'm just a poor average Christian. I don't have that kind of training. I I haven't read this this multitude of books. I have not studied up on all of these grand issues. I, I would be lost be able to communicate the Gospel and answer all of these objections. So they simply choose not to proclaim the excellencies of God. They shrink back. They're like soldiers who believe that since they may not qualify to be in the elite special forces, they have no role on the battlefield at all. They don't belong in the army altogether. Brothers and sisters, by way of encouragement this morning, I want to draw your attention to what this text says. And I want you to listen not to what the fears and the doubts, and perhaps even the shame and the guilt and the words of Satan may be saying, but listen to the words of God. The text of Holy Scripture does not begin here in verse 9 with a conditional clause. Peter does not write here, if you are a great preacher or if you are a great theologian, or if you are a great apologist, you may proclaim the excellencies of God. He does not say that there are qualifications that you have yet to reach, or that there is something that is presently lacking in you that excludes you from this holy calling. Now he says here that if you are a Christian, you are eminently qualified in every way because of who you are and because of what God has done for you. What you have known. He says here, but you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. 
a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, this is all the qualification that you need to proclaim the excellencies of God. In fact, these descriptions here far surpass even any titles that you could receive through some kind of formal training. These are titles, and this is a status that is far beyond a doctor of theology, a doctor of apologetics. These are descriptions that are given to you from on high. These are titles that are given to you by God. This is what He has in fact made you, and this is how He has qualified you to proclaim His excellencies. He has made you recipients of those excellencies. You've already graduated. You've walked on stage and you've received your diploma, if you will. You're qualified because God has made you so. I want you to think with me just for a moment. Let us imagine that you have been an Israelite in the days of the Exodus. You were there when God sent His plagues as judgments against the Egyptians, against Pharaoh and against their gods. You saw the river turn to blood. You saw the land consumed in darkness. You participated in the Passover and you watched as God struck down in judgment the firstborn of Egypt. You heard the cries of the people. You were there when God led the people of Israel in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. You witnessed the sea being parted and made dry and you walked through it. You saw God reveal Himself on Mount Sinai and you heard the message of Moses that he received from God when he came down from the mountain and he said, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, the holy nation. In a word, you were a recipient of the saving acts of God. And now by virtue of those works, you had a distinct status in the world as God's chosen people. Now, had you come across some Moabite this Moabite began asking you questions, began scoffing at you. Why do you Israelites do the things that you do? All of these silly things. Why do you believe the things that you believe? You don't accept the gods of the other nations. You, you claim to worship 
one God. The one true God, as you say. Which is a a most arrogant and exclusive notion if I've ever heard one. And you claim that this one true God by His very Word created all things. An idea itself that all of the greatest thinkers of our day have proven to be false. You have all of these strange ceremonies. You believe that you have to stop working one day a week and set it aside all for the worship of this God. Whereas the rest of the world, we we know that we can worship our gods whenever we please and however we please. Smoabite is raising all of these questions and all of these objections to you. You think that the only way that you could ever possibly respond to him is if you held some distinguished title. Or if you had some extra formal training of sorts. If you could speak to this scoffing Moabite. I suspect not. I suspect that you might say something to the effect of, you know, these are all important questions. I may not have answers to all of them. I may not be able to give you an answer that you're satisfied with in this very moment, but this I can tell you. I once was a slave, and now I'm free. And I was a slave in Egypt, and this God set me free. I once worshipped all of the gods that you yourself are worshipping even now, but then the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob came into my life. And He rescued me not only from physical bondage, but from spiritual bondage. And I do all of these things that you call strange because this God who saved me has commanded me to do these things and because these things are a reflection of the person and work of God and my relationship to Him. And this God is the only God who has shown Himself to be a living God. This is the God who has saved me. I suspect you could say something similar to this with much confidence, not because you are confident in your natural giftedness with words, but simply because you would be proclaiming the very excellencies of God that you've tasted yourself. You've known them. Friends, I think it is very similar for the Christian. Peter in this text is describing who we are. He's describing what God has done for us. And he's not describing it as if it is this mystical concept that is floating far away from our own concrete lives. As if it is just this idea off in the distance. He's describing it as if it is something that when the recipients of this letter 
read it and they hear what he is describing, they can say to every word of it, yes and amen. That is what God did for me. He's assuming that these very Christians are those who can say, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He's assuming that these Christians have a much greater knowledge of God than even the ancient Israelites did in the wilderness because God has not revealed Himself to them at a distance. He has not commanded them to stay back, to stay away from the mountain lest they die. He has not closed them off from the most holy place. No, He has sealed them with His own Holy Spirit and brought them near. And He has borne witness of Himself not to their eyes, which like the Israelites would have been something that they could have seen and just not believed, but He has borne witness to their very hearts and given them access to His heavenly presence through the blood of Christ. They have tasted the goodness of God far greater than even the Israelites in the days of the Exodus. And Peter, knowing all of this, is calling them to proclaim nothing more than what they have known of God themselves. That He is the One who has brought me from darkness and into His marvelous light. The one who's rescued me from my sins. There's no such thing as a Christian who has not known that very reality. Because that is the very thing that makes one a Christian. A Christian is one who knows that at one time they lived in the bondage of sin and darkness. They were enslaved to the lust and the passions of their flesh. They were ignorant of God. But then God in His kindness and in His mercy gave them mercy and rescued them from their wickedness through the Gospel of Christ. They've known this. A Christian has an experiential knowledge of that grace and a knowledge of God because it is this very God who has shined the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus into their very hearts. He has spoken life out of death created something new out of a heart which was once dead. And it is because if you are a Christian, you have this knowledge of God, you can say that you know Him and that you walk with Him. It is because God Himself, in calling you out of darkness, made you into something that you once were not chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, a people who have received 
mercy. It is because of this high and honorable status that you possess by the mercy of God that you are eminently qualified to proclaim with all the boldness of the world the infinite excellencies of God in Christ. That's what qualifies you. You have no reason at all to be fearful of the world. Look at what God has made you. And look at what He's done for you. That's what you look at. You know, apart from Christ, men often act with a lot of boldness in their rebellion and in their rejection of God. They're not fearful. They're not concerned. They openly deny His rule. They blaspheme willingly. They mock and they ridicule Him. And they mock and they ridicule God's people. They plaster their ungodliness on billboards and in movies and in all of the various avenues of media. They flaunt it in parades and parties. And they do all of this in utter ignorance. And they do it as those who before God are under His judgment. And are variously described throughout the Bible as those who are children of wrath and who are dead in trespasses and sins and who are deaf and who are blind and who are fools. In essence, they have no justification at all for speaking such madness in such a state, and yet still, they are all the more bold in their rejection of Yahweh. How much more, friends, should we be able to proclaim the excellencies of Christ with such boldness when we hold the very status that we do hold. We are not ambassadors who are making an appeal to a foreign power that is much grander and much greater than the one we are speaking on behalf of. It is not as if we are ambassadors who are going to the great Caesar and we are We are nothing more than a vassal nation trembling with weak knees and wondering what this great Caesar may do to us. We are ambassadors of the Kingdom of God and we make our appeal to the world with the very authority of heaven itself. And if the world does not receive that appeal, we do not hang our heads low in shame as if the world has called our bluff. We have pity on those who do not know their ultimate end and we make our appeal to the King that He would shine the light of His grace into their dead hearts. We appeal to the Sovereign. What we must never do is to allow the world to display more boldness in their rebellion 
than we do in our obedience. In the devotion that I read this past week at prayer meeting, the Puritan William Gurnall wrote, How uncomely a sight it is to see a bold sinner and fearful saint, one resolved to be wicked and a Christian wavering in his holy course, to see hell keep the field while the saints hide their colors for shame. Take heart, O ye saints, and be strong. Your cause is good. God Himself adopts your quarrel. He shall lead you on with courage and bring you off with honor. The wicked do not have any excellencies to proclaim. They have only idols, false gods and mists that fade away with the wind. They have nothing that will remain for eternity. We of all people should know this because we of all people were at one time counted among them. We know the vanity of the world. Because of Christ, we are able to see this vanity and able to see the ultimate end of sin, which is everlasting judgment. Because of Christ, we are able to see the gold streets of the kingdom of heaven, which will never perish. And because of Christ, we are able to walk in the light of the gospel of God. In essence, it is because of Christ that we now have an infinite number of excellencies to proclaim, excellencies that are in fact grounded on a firm, solid foundation that will never be moved. We have all the justification, in fact the only true justification for living with zeal and with boldness before God and before men. So as Gurnall says, it is an uncomely sight to see a bold sinner and a fearful saint. And having said that, I don't think the remedy to this fearfulness is ultimately going to be found in guilt or shame. I don't think that's going to be the great motivator or driver that will cause us to, as the psalmist says, open our mouths and declare His excellencies. It is the work of Satan to raise the guilt of our fearfulness before us and to convince us that because of it, we will never be of any good use to the Master. Remedy is to be found in remembering who you are before God. You are, in His estimation, not some nuisance. You are not a failed experiment. If you belong to Christ, you are not one of the...
unfortunate few soldiers that he has whom he can never send to battle because he's just simply unable to train you. You're not among the the few saints of which when he disciplines you and he works his work of sanctification in you, it's just not going to work. Your weaknesses do not render Christ's work in you and His use of you impossible and your fears are not greater than His strength. You are a child of the King. You have royal blood running through your veins. You have good genes because you have been born of the Spirit of God. You are among God's chosen people. And He chose you for a reason. He chose you because He knows that your mouth and your life will make much of His glory. That is the purpose He has for making you a chosen people and a royal priesthood so that in and through you, His purposes in proclaiming His excellencies will be accomplished. And your fearfulness will not stop that work. He will work His strength in you. You are a member of the royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. And as He says, you are a treasured possession. That is who you are in Christ. Before God and before me. It's true that at one time you did not that, that, like a poor man with rags for clothes, with dirt on your face, malnourished skin hanging off your bones, and no shoes on your feet. That was your pitiful status before God, before Christ transferred you from darkness into light. In such a state, you had no real reason for confidence. You had no justification to be courageous. But now it is as if Christ has taken you off the streets He's washed the dirt from your body. And He's fed you with a heavenly feast to give you strength. He's removed your rags. And He's clothed you with royal robes. And He's commanded you to bow the knee before Him. And as He then tells you to arise, He presents before you a crown of righteousness. He places it upon your head. and He gives you a scepter to represent His rule before the world. And He has given you a new name. You were once a people who were called Loami, not My people. Now in Christ, you are called children of God. 
He's changed you. You are no longer that poor wretch of a man, but you are now a member of the royal priesthood. What boldness should that give you? You are living in behalf of the king. You have the authority of the king and the scepter of righteousness. You are clothed in heavenly robes. What kind of confidence should this raise in your hearts? That is who you are now, friends, because of Christ what He has done in you. And so friends, as you go into the world, as you, as you raise your families, as you train your children, as you speak to them of the Gospel of Christ, as you encounter other members of your family who do not know Christ and perhaps are scoffers at this very moment. As you go into your place of work, you speak to others who you know are absent of the Gospel of Christ and are bold in their willful rejection of Him. You don't go into those situations. You don't You don't conduct yourself with fear and shame. You hold your head up high with confidence. And not a kind of confidence that's rooted in yourself and your own ability. You're confident because of the one you are an ambassador on behalf of. You proclaim His excellencies. Teach, you preach the gospel, you call people to repentance, leaving the results of what happens in their heart to God alone. But on behalf of God, you make your appeal to the world be reconciled. You do it with boldness, you carry yourself as a child of the King. You remember those things. Again, it is a great disaster when we forget who we are in Christ. When we think of ourselves only in light of the failures and the sins that the devil in our flesh raises before us. But it is not without reason that Peter gives these descriptions to a people who are in the midst of a fiery trial and who at any moment could, in their own nature and strength, shrink back. He's telling them, this is who you are. and God has made you this way so that you will proclaim His excellencies through fire, or through comfort. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Father, it is a great honor that you have given to us, one that we do not deserve. We who were once not a people, now being called your people. You have made multitude of promises to us that nothing ill will happen to us that you are not sovereignly in control of. That whether it is shame, whether it is scoffers or ridicule, whether it is pain and suffering, these things are used by you to make us more like Christ. And I pray, Lord, that as we go out from here, that we would not forget who you have made us to be. And that we would not forget this great high calling you have given to us to perform. That we would be good and faithful priests who offer righteous sacrifices to you, chiefly in the proclamation of your many excellencies. Give us boldness, I pray, in Jesus' name.